0: Hello, this is Congressman Jim Clyburn, and I would like to welcome you to my podcast, Clyburn Chronicles. I've always been a lover of history. I see this platform as a way to connect history with the politics of today. This is so important, because as Judge Santiano once said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Each episode, my guest and I will have a conversation about the lessons of the past, the politics of the present, and how we must learn from those experiences to help shape the future. Thank you for taking time to listen and welcome to Clyburn Chronicles. from Jim Clyburn, and welcome to another episode of Clyburn Prodigals. As you know, on June 19th, we celebrate Juneteenth to commemorate the day the news of the Emancipation Proclamation reaching the last remaining enslaved Americans in Texas in 1865, two and a half years after the proclamation was originally made effective. Juneteenth became an official federal holiday two years ago when President Biden signed the Juneteenth National Independence Day Act into law. The celebrations of Juneteenth date back more than one and a half centuries. This year marks a very special Juneteenth celebration for me. On June 24th, we will all gather in Charleston, South Carolina a few days after Juneteenth to open the International African American Museum in Charleston, South Carolina. That museum is built on the spot of Gadsden Wharf. One of the wharfs along the Charleston Harbor where more than 40% of enslaved Africans were brought into America. The museum will document an experience that started in Africa centuries ago and features 12 permanent exhibitions, an African ancestors' memorial garden and a center for family history, a research center dedicated to existing African Americans with discovering and reconnecting with their ancestors, many of whom began their history in America at Gadsden Wall i'm particularly proud of this because it was my great honor to serve as the original chair of the steering committee that brought all of this together and began the track to us being where we are today two weeks ago uh, i entertained several hundred uh, washingtonians uh, at the museum, and I have gotten nothing but grave reviews. In fact, several have said to me that they have visited many museums, including the one here in Washington, but felt nothing in these places, the way they felt in that museum, and gave it high marks. And so today, I'm very proud and excited for this museum to finally come to life, The unrelented efforts of so many will be realized in the opening of this truly sacred place. And to discuss the opening of the museum and what it means for the Black community in America as well as around the globe is one of the preeminent experts on South Carolina and African American history. Dr. Bobby Dallinson, who I list among my very special friends. Dr. Dallinson is a professor of history at the University of South Carolina and leads their center for civil rights history and research. He specializes in Southern history and African-American life and culture in the 19th and 20th centuries. His research explores African-American intellectual thought, print culture, education, and religion. He has consulted on numerous museum exhibitions, archival projects, documentary films, and historical preservation projects. The Center for Civil Rights History and Research is dedicated to documenting the contribution of South Carolinians to the American Civil Rights Movement. And Professor Donaldson was essential to founding in this center an instrumental to its growth and success. I've known Dr. Donaldson for many years. There are few people that are more knowledgeable about the African-American experience than he is. And I'm very pleased to have Dr. Donaldson with us today. And I thank you very much for joining me for this
1: edition of Clyburn mm-hmm. Chronicles, Dr. Donaldson. Thank you Congressman and glad to be with you. So before we discuss the museum itself,
0: I want to talk about how the museum came to be. As I mentioned earlier, This museum has been in the works for more than two decades. In fact, I was a little bit surprised to find out uh, that it was 23 years ago when we launched this effort. Now, from your experiences, why would you say we need this museum?
1: Uh, well, before we begin, I want to commend you and Mayor Joe Riley of Charleston and so many others who kept the faith. It's two decades in the making, and during the course of those two decades, many, many people thought we would never arrive to this amazing point where we are. And we're fortunate that we are because now on the Cooper River, there is an extraordinary facility that helps to amplify the important contributions of African-Americans, not only to South Carolina not only to this nation, but around the world. Uh, and so it is a, is a, it is a powerful monument in my, from my perspective uh, to that incredible history. As you indicated, there are museums all across this country that chronicle the history of African-Americans, most notably the museum in DC. But this museum on the Cooper River in downtown Charleston is different. It's different just because of where it's located. Uh, And having recently been to the site and having the experience of now seeing this museum at its completion, uh, it is a moving experience to be in the Charleston Harbor, to be on the very site where thousands and thousands of Africans were brought into this nation, where many were sold on that very property, where many were held in pens on that very property, and to now know in that very space we're able to capture their story, but also the stories of those who came thereafter. So what makes this museum also unique, it is not simply a museum that chronicles the past, but it's also a museum that enables citizens to capture and tell their own story. So you have within this space, not only the amazing journey of Africans to this nation, but also a space where people can now document and uncover their own genealogical background, uh, and that is that is really quite unusual in this space. So it's both a museum, but it's also a teaching space.
0: Well, you know, I think that's so important. That I like to tell the story of the very back 23 years ago, when we first started discussing uh, this, uh, Jim Riley uh, asked me to chair, we all were a bit afraid uh, to undertake this. In fact, I sat down with my late wife uh, for quite a while discussing whether or not I should do it. Because we knew uh, that some controversies uh, could probably ensue. And being in public office, she didn't want me uh, getting caught up in too much of that. But we decided to go forth with it. At the same time we were talking, just a few years later, uh, there was all these discussions about the museums all over. and A lot of people wanted us to make this a slave museum. But what you just said uh, is indicative of the thought processes that we had. Uh, When I held out that it could not be just a slave museum, uh, that it had to be uplifting People had to come into the space and leave, feeling that they have taken a journey, and not that they have come to a destination of slavery. Uh, how do you overcome uh, is what this is all about. And so that museum, and what people said to me, started even with the naming of it. I remember I was having the debate about what it should, what the name should be. Uh, and we settled on International African American Museum with the acronym of I AM, I AM, that means a whole lot. I-A-A-M, there's a little figurine up behind me that's called I AM. It comes from those garbage workers in oh. Memphis, Tennessee. And one of them said to the mayor during the discussion, I am a man. Uh, And that led to, we all remember, that's where Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated while leading that effort in Memphis. So to make this an international African-American museum, because from Africa through the Caribbean up into Charleston, nothing could be more international than that. Talk to us a little bit about your episodes with this thought of
1: the international
0: aspect uh, to this museum.
1: Well, what's amazing about um, this term, so in the minds of many, Charleston is now a tourist destination. In the minds of many, it's a dot on the map in the state of South Carolina. What this museum reminds all is that Charleston was critical in the international maritime trade of which the transatlantic slave trade was a critical part. So you go into this museum now and you're reminded of that. You're not just reminded of it. You, you see evidence of it. You see ledgers. you see newspaper accounts. Um, you see the critical role Charleston plays in the transportation, the enslavement and the exploitation of black people. You see the connection between West Africa, the Caribbean, and the, the, the Gulf Coast of, 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 of this nation. So it, can, it, it is a reflection of that in an international sense. But there's something else you said that's important too, and that did not dawn on me until you just mentioned it, about the garbage workers. So I am a man. There was another great civil rights leader in Atlanta who had a sermon called, I am somebody. His name was William Holmes Border, who was pastor of the Wheat Street Baptist Church in Atlanta, right down the street from Ebenezer. Well, Reverend Jesse Jackson of Greenville, who's in the exhibit, takes that uh, and becomes an essential part of his own campaign, I Am Somebody. And one of the important takeaways in my time in that exhibit is that it is an emotional experience, riveting, powerful, painful. But you leave there knowing you're somebody. You know you know you are part of a great tradition. And so in some ways, that museum, the I Am, is an affirmation. You see the evidence of African-American ingenuity. You see the evidence of African-American resistance. You see the evidence of African-American brilliance. And so you leave there as an African-American, affirm about your capacity, affirm, about our contributions to this nation. So again, I'm not sure when you are around the table with that I am concept, if that was in mind or not, but that was certainly my takeaway uh, in my experience there. Well, let me tell you something. It's kind of interesting.
0: You and I have known each other for a long, long time. I I don't know if I've ever heard you mention uh, William McKinley Borders, but let me tell you something. The best sermon, my father was a fundamentalist minister, Uh, was my pastor for uh, uh, 40 years, uh, who I heard a lot of good sermons from. My mother's father was a minister, a very good preacher. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr., I've heard him many times. Jesse Jackson, Al South, and I've heard all of that. But the best sermon I ever heard in my life was sitting there in the latter back in 1960, William McKinley Barnes. I will never forget that sermon. He told the story of standing in a post office in Atlanta. And the lady coming into that post office who was poorly dressed, a bit disheveled, and how he first thought he cast his eyes away from her. And then it came to him that that's you. Could be your Parent or your sister and how he had a sort of metamorphosis watching her and uh, embracing her presence. I have never forgotten that sermon and that sermon I think uh, still uh, rests with me. That's one reason I just can't have look down on anybody. Uh why I spent so much time trying to help students get a leg up, because of William McKinley Borders. And I didn't know that you knew him. Uh, yeah. But um, that sermon was the best sermon I ever heard. At least it had the
1: most impact on me than any sermon that I've ever heard. Well, well, the other connection about Reverend Borders in this museum is, and I have to say this, and it's a, it's a compliment, that museum is overwhelming. There is so much to absorb and to take in that it's almost difficult to do so in one visit. Almost, it's very much like my experience at the museum in D.C. Um, But there may be people who come to that museum who have no connection to South Carolina or to Charleston, but who have connections to Atlanta or Birmingham or South, and they will see resonances of individuals and movements elsewhere, Um, The other important piece about this museum in South Carolina, and you underscored this, we think over 40 to 60 percent of African-Americans can trace their roots to the Charleston Harbor, to that area, to the area around Gaster's Wharf. And a part of the I Am experience is there are so many people around this country of color who have known or unknown roots to Charleston and to South Carolina. And I think this museum now will amplify that uh, and will give people a resource and a venue to uncover the larger unknown aspects of our own journeys. Um, The other important piece about that museum, I think, is that we talk about Althea Gibson or Daisy Gillespie or Ernest Everett Just. And many people may know them in their context in DC or New York or elsewhere but may not know that those individuals were from South Carolina. They were part of the great migration of bodies and talents who left this state and who had impact and influence elsewhere. And I think this museum does a great job of reminding a student or a visitor that there are so many notable individuals of this nation uh, who have deep roots in South Carolina. Absolutely, and uh, you know, for anybody Uh, Getting
0: off an airplane uh, in Charleston and uh, taking the trip uh, by car or motor vehicle down to the museum. Uh, On the way there, I uh, would ask you to go through a traditional African-American neighborhood. And you will see uh, what we call narrowly shaped houses. Uh with the porches on the side. And uh, I, when I first got to Charleston, everybody called that the Charleston house. Mm-hmm. Well, I learned through my research that that house came from Barbados. Mm-hmm. Uh, the slaves uh, who, uh, those who left Africa really and became enslaved, uh, stopped off through the Caribbean, a lot of them in Barbados. And they brought that style because uh, that allowed wind uh to blow through uh, so rather than having the porch on the front and have the wind blocking uh, the porch is on the side and uh, so it act, acts as ventilation and so all of that is a kind of uh, history that makes this whole effort uh, an international war and, and so uh i had so many people who were there with us uh, a couple of weeks ago said to me they've got to go back because right. they they made some attempts to you know, to trace some stuff and they didn't have enough time to get it done they're going back and so i think it's so important for uh, for people to be able to find a little more uh, about themselves and also to find out uh for the contribution that south carolina made to all of this effort and let me say one thing and i'm glad you uh, pointed this out. Gaston Wall was one of the Walls. Now, we aren't saying that all of the slaves and uh, all those who came and were enslaved came through a Gaston Wall. It was the biggest mm-hmm. of the Walls. There were several Walls along there. So I had to uh, let somebody know since we left there uh, who we went and found somewhere that. Uh, uh, are you sure that was a right oh, wall? I don't know if that was the one that they, I know it's not one that everybody came through. Uh, but there are 10 or 12 wharfs along uh, the Charleston and the so what we say is this was the largest of the, the wharfs. and then uh, as you said uh, over 40% I'm 5, 6 that came through Charleston. So it could have been on another
1: wharf that some people came, but it's all the Charleston Hollow. But what's interesting about having now gone there, and is I, don't re- I don't altogether remember what was there pre- previously, but you now have condos to your left and right. You now have the, the Fort Sumter Liberty Park. The aquarium is down the street. And here you have this narrow space that was largely undeveloped, almost waiting for this museum to come into being. And so you have Gaston's War that is quite ironic. So many know that in 1808, there is a so-called official ending of slave importation, though we now know that continued. But what's ironic in Charleston in 1806, according to a professor in Charleston named Nick, Nick Butler, the city of Charleston passed an ordinance that prohibited the sale of enslaved people at any other space in Charleston, except Gaston's Wharf. It's mentioned specifically. So between 1806 and 1808, there's a lot of records, including newspaper accounts, that indicate that every single enslaved person who came into Charleston came directly through Gaston's Wharf. Uh, And and there's a notion of maybe between those two-year periods, over 40,000 people coming into the very space where the museum is located. So that's just those who were trafficked in. That's not including those who were sold on that property. And that's not including those who were held in uh, in, in bondage there waiting for sale. Now, the other thing, Congressman, I'm learning as I look into this museum is what we're learning about the enslaved people is that they are commodities. They are listed as commodities in the newspapers. They're listed as bodies and in commodities in, in these accounts. And we're seeing where they're being held in these pens and cells on the same ground as Gasson's work, waiting for the market to change. And we're seeing where people are being held in these unbearable conditions, hoping they'll get a better price. As people now know, the slave trade is changing because of the end of importation. So there's a lot in that museum that amplifies a lot of what we're talking about uh, in this conversation that will be mind-boggling to a lot of people who think they know what slavery is. And what we see in this museum, it is a complex business operation that was brutal in the way it was executed.
0: Absolutely. And there's there's something else I want to say before we move on Um, here. Yes, and well, i wanted to let a few people know what this is. Gaston Walsh was named for a guy whose name was Gaston. And a lot of people are familiar with Gaston, and may not know it. And I see there's a license plate, a Virginia license plate that I see at the airport here all the time. It's got this little, it's, it's a yellow plate, just like the yellow flag The Gaston flag is that yellow flag that you see with this snake curled up in the center of it. That's called a Gaston flag. That flag was the flag of this guy, Gaston, who owned this wall. So you see that Gaston flag with that connotation of don't trade on me. (laughs) Gaston flag related directly to Gaston Wharf, where this museum is built. So all of you in Virginia who are listening, uh, you can come down to Charleston to Gaston Wharf and get in touch with what that uh, license plate you see running around Virginia and may not know what it really is. Mm
1: -hmm. The the other thing about that site, because, and I think the museum does paint the horror and the tragedy of what happens in this trade of, of human bodies. But again, going back to the I Am piece, so it chronicles the, the death and the debilitating conditions of people in that space. But what the larger museum does is, who are those who remain? Who are those who survived? Who are those who resisted, who endured? And that's what that whole space is about. How do generations thereafter make something of, themse- of themselves, endure and overcome those conditions. So that's again where I say that this is an extraordinary affirmation of the descendants of enslaved people. And so to you and others who said this cannot just be a slave museum, that's exactly right. I mean, the story does not end there. and This museum now amplifies what does become of those generations thereafter.
0: Absolutely. Now, since I mentioned Gadsden and the, the fact that the people in Virginia is gone while over this license plate that they've got out there. And I'm amazed at how many of these license plates I've, I'm seeing recently. Uh, let me mention something else, based on what you just said. Um, on the day that we had the groundbreaking for this museum, uh, I keynoted uh, that uh, program, and mm-hmm. it was the day of the funeral of Elijah Cummins. Hmm. I could not go to Elijah Cummins' funeral because I was committed to do this groundbreaking. They were both held on the same day at 11 a.m. And I used this groundbreaking and Elijah Cummins' homegoing service to make the point of this museum that day because. Elijah Curran's great-great-grandfather, Scipio Rain, was a slave in Clarendon County, South Carolina. Uh, His parents uh, grew up in Clarendon County and were uh, sharecroppers there. They moved to Baltimore and Elijah was born in Baltimore But I told that story so people will understand why this museum had to be the kind of museum that it is. Because I wanted this museum to show how a Scipio Ram could be enslaved in Clarendon County, South Carolina, and his great-great-grandson becomes chair of one of the most important committees in the United States Congress, and became the first person of color uh, to lie in state when he passed away here uh, in Statuary Hall. That's what this museum is all about: showing how that journey uh, started and how it continues, because it is not ended. So that's what this museum is all about. And I think the Scipio Ram and Elijah Cummings story uh, is at one point when they start changing out uh, these exhibits. I, I, I'm gonna be there lobbying for an exhibit to talk about that kind of a eternity that people can see.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, one, one of those journeys that's directly connected to this is one you know all too well. I mean, it is that of Joseph Rainey. I mean, here was someone who was a barber employed at the Mills Hotel in Charleston, who, right. the, who is then brought in, employed, commanded, to now build barricades for the Confederacy, who then leaves Charleston, goes to Bermuda, comes back, becomes part of the reconstruction experiment, and then becomes the first African-American who is seated in the House of Representatives. That story is amplified multiple times uh, in, in, in this museum and really looking at how do you take these folk who no one envisioned reconstruction in South Carolina. This exhibit helps explain how that came to be, how in a short period of time, there were revolutionary changes in this state and in this nation. And then the museum also explains how that revolution came to a crashing end. There was a powerful letter in the exhibit. I'm not sure if you saw it. It was from August of 1876. It was from Robert Small's writing to the governor. Of South Carolina, explaining the violence that he and others were enduring and witnessing in the summer and the fall of 1876, as there is a cons- there is a very conscious effort to undermine Reconstruction through racial violence. So the exhibit tells that story in ways that may not be widely known to most people who visit uh, Charleston, South Carolina.
0: That's quite true. Uh, just this morning, uh, we were typing uh this uh, few days before uh, Juneteenth, um, uh, I met with a, a bunch of students from all over the country, uh, various colleges and universities, and uh, and I explained to them uh, some of what uh, you just talked about here. Uh, a guy like Joseph Rainey himself, born into slavery, his father was a barber and was allowed to keep some of his income. He used that income to purchase his family's freedom in Georgetown, South Carolina, and then moved his family to Charleston and taught his son uh, the trade. And his son, Joseph, uh, as you said, uh, owned or ran the barbershop in the Mills house that you can walk to from this museum. That's not the same building that was down there, but the Mills House has been redone, refurbished, and still exists today. And that's where Joseph Rennie had his barber shop. And as you said, uh, Robert Smalls from Beaufort, South Carolina, where he was a slave, his journey read it to Charleston Harbor. Where he captured the planter uh, and turned it over to the Indian soldiers and got his freedom. And that letter you are talking about came about, as I explained to those students today, came about because of the elections of 1876. The same election that recent events in here on January 6th was trying to replicate what happened in 1876 when Russell B. Hayes and Tilden uh, both claimed. The president, I mean, the presidency, presidential election is not definitive. Mm-hmm. And it got thrown into the House of Representatives. And it was the Tilden-Hayes Compromise uh, that grew out of that. And then Reverend B Hayes became president of the United States by one vote and took all the troops out of the South, and now the rest is history. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what Robert Smalls was writing about, because on that same year, two people claimed the governorship of South Carolina. <laughs> and so, uh, you have what, Chamberlain and uh, Wade Hapton. Right. And it was Wade Hampton that got the governorship, and then uh, the Redeemers, people wanted to redeem the South, mm-hmm. uh, took control, uh, and that's when all of that violence that Robert Smalls wrote about began to take place, mm-hmm. and this museum's going to tell all of those stories, and so that people all, both, especially if you're from New York, I think it was Samuel Tilden, it was from New York. Uh, uh, You got a direct relationship. There's so much of what took place back then that changed the entire direction of the country, 1876. And just think about that. This country was born 1776. And it was 1876 exactly one years later that it took its turn uh, for the worse mm-hmm. so that's what this museum is all about um, I, know, I know we could go on you and I could talk about this forever I know that, uh, much more you talk about the genealogy that uh, to take place here um, I don't know if there's
1: anything else that you would want to say. Well, I'll just say something about the genealogy because as a professor at the University of South Carolina, I can't tell you how often we get inquiries. We get more inquiries about that than really anything else. People want to know life, their their family journey prior to the Civil War, and that's often a brick wall for a lot of people. People want to know how they're connected to Native Americans, if, or if they are or not. And this Family Center uh, at the I Am Museum is well-positioned now to help people make those discoveries. And it may confirm or may challenge. there a lot of people I know who just believe in their hearts, they're Native American, their roots there. And increasingly, these genealogical studies are now challenging or raising questions uh, about those claims. And so I, I'm excited about just that component. And I had a chance to visit that area while I was at the museum. Uh, and I think that's going to be a gravitational pull to the site as anything else, because that is where so many people don't even know where to begin. How do you understand census reports? How do you look through historic documents? Uh, and so I'm hopeful that that museum not only will it educate people about the past, but it will also educate people and equip people to not learn more about their own family history.
0: Well, that is so true, and thank you so much for that. I Because I'm going to be in that number. Uh, I'll spread the a- uh, I've had two uh, different groups uh, looking into to my background because there's a lot uh, that I've heard uh, about my relationship with certain people. Uh, in fact, um, you know, I'm writing this book now about uh, the eight African Americans that served in Congress from South Carolina before me. Uh, we could go all the way back to Joseph Rennie. And you come all the way forward to George Washington Murray, who was number eight. And George Washington Murray, in some manner, uh, we're in the same family. Uh, a lot that nobody talks about. But I can't find uh, anything about my father's father, and then find his mother and her parents. But I can't find uh, who his father was. All of this census stuff that I've gone through. Got him and his two brothers and his mother. Nothing about who his father was. And there are all kinds of stories about that. I'm hoping this museum will help me. Uh, you remember Richard Kane, right. who served in Congress, who also passed to the manual uh, AMB Church. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we all know how important Emmanuel AME Church is to Charleston. He was a son of an African dad and an Indian mother. Uh, He was uh, Native American, uh, 50%. So this kind of stuff is going to be found through them. The story of uh, Thomas E. Milton, Mm -hmm. third-day Congress, became the first president of South Carolina State when it was created. Thomas Miller, uh, when you look at him, you can understand why he wrote on this tombstone and what he did. And I'm going to be in uh, the little country this weekend. I'm planning to go to Miller's uh, grave site and see I, if I can get to her to take the picture of that tombstone where he talks about his own heritage. Miller was adopted by African Americans. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the story is he really was not African-American. And when you look at it you, you know he was not African-American. So these stories are great stories that everybody needs to know, uh, because I think it's what tells us not just who South Carolinians are, but who Americans are as well. So I'm gonna thank you for being with us today. Um, And I'm sure that you and I are gonna to get together again after People have had a year or so to experience this museum and because I think the most stories gonna come out of this museum uh, as it goes along.
1: Yeah, and I think that's an important piece too. I mean, this this museum does not tell the complete story, nor should it. I think it points the way and I think it also clearly indicates other areas to improve upon. Uh, it complements, you know, there are, there is the Avery Institute at the College of Charleston, the Penn Center. There are so many, and I'm and I'm hopeful that this museum Will amplify those other areas and those other resources throughout South Carolina and elsewhere in this in the in the country. Uh, who are telling this story? And I think, just given the notoriety of the museum, my hope is that it will drive interest, foot traffic elsewhere uh, in the state as well.
0: Absolutely, and I do believe that the center that you're running there at the University of South Carolina uh, in uh, this museum. Can certainly be complementary uh, of each other. There's so much. Uh, if you just look at the fact, it was there at the University of South Carolina. Uh, it was the only, back uh, atlas the Civil War, mm-hmm. it was the only um, higher education institution uh, in the former slave states that was integrated. Right. Um, the first graduate, black graduate of, uh,
1: Harvard University became professor there at the University of South Carolina. Richard T. Greener, and Greener, Greener is there in that space, um, right? I saw when I was visiting uh, a reference to Briggs v. Elliott, and we of course know the impact of that litigation. There was references to Isaac Woodard. Right. Uh, much more to say about the blinding of that sergeant in Batesburg and its impact around this nation. And my hope is that as people come to the museum. These are those kinds of stories which took place in South Carolina that had repercussions across this nation that many people may not be fully aware of. That's quite true,
0: quite true. And, and once again, when Greener left the University of South Carolina, came up here to Washington and became uh, the dean of Howard University law
1: school. You yeah, can't get more international than Richard Greener. No, absolutely not. If you hear someone who leaves this nation, goes over to Russia as an envoy, comes back, I mean, uh, this this notion of the I am, the more I look at some of these connections, um, there is a lot to learn about the international impact of people who are either from South Carolina or who spend a great deal of time in South Carolina.
0: Absolutely, absolutely, me looking forward to it.
1: Well, let me thank you
0: so much uh, for all that you do, uh, especially in this space Uh, I'm looking forward to uh, us having a long, productive relationship, Uh, seeing this uh, museum, uh, not just the opening, want to see it flourish and see people visit there. I think it has the, uh, you know, Charleston believes, in fact, our number one industry in South Carolina is tourism. I think this museum got the uh, chance of being one of the biggest uh, tourist attractions uh, in the state of south carolina uh, and i'm hopeful uh that you and i can get together in another year or two and talk about uh what that impact has been absolutely
1: absolutely well, i want to thank you for the time and i'll tell people anyone who listens to these broadcasts and know you although you're a member of congress you're always a history teacher and yes. all i'm a student uh so <laughs> i uh, <laughs> uh,
0: must appreciate it we, we trade places quite a bit. Quite a bit. We do. Yeah. Well, let me thank all of you for listening and remind you that this has been another edition of Clyburn Chronicles. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Clyburn Chronicles. If you enjoyed this episode, please let us know by leaving a comment. And don't forget to subscribe to my show wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. Until next time, I'm Congressman Jim Clyburn.